This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Monstrous Moms and Dastardly Dads, where I discuss cases of parents who went bad. The word filicide shouldn't even exist. It means killing one's own son or daughter. We even have examples of filicide in children's stories, our fairy tales. Snow White and Hansel and Gretel are both tales of children who are cast out on their own to perish. The villain of the story is often a woman, an evil stepmother or witch. But less popular in fiction is a male who commits filicide. But unfortunately, there are enough of these villains in real life. In this series, I will share two cases of women and two cases of men who committed heinous crimes against their own offspring. This is Chapter 2, John List. December 7, 1971. Officers in Westfield, New Jersey, received a call about an intrusion at a home located at 431 Hillside Avenue. The address belonged to an estate named Breeze Knoll that sat on an acre of land, the lawn rolling gently up to the front door from Hillside Avenue. It had originally been a Grand Victorian structure, built in 1895, but now looked a bit shabby, with peeling paint on the shutters and overgrown brush leading up to the house. Still, it was impressive, with its 19 rooms, which included two living rooms, five bedrooms, a kitchen with a butler's pantry, a billiard room, a third-floor apartment complete with a kitchen, and a 30-foot-long ballroom. It had oak floors throughout, ten fireplaces, some made of marble with hand-carved teak mantles. One could see how majestic it might have looked in its heyday. This wasn't the first call the police had received to check out the residence. For several weeks, concerned neighbors and friends of the family had called to have welfare checks made on the family who lived there. Initially, neighbors heard that John and Helen List and their three children had all left town in early November to attend a sick relative. They were to be gone an undetermined amount of time. But after several weeks, with no word from anyone in the family, some began to grow concerned. The school attendance officer noting that the list children didn't often miss school, felt concerned enough to take a drive out to the property. No one answered the door, and she didn't see anything out of the ordinary. A teacher called the list's pastor, knowing that they were faithful attendants of the Lutheran church, and that John List and his children were active in the parish. The pastor, Eugene Rewinkle, reported that he'd received a letter from Mr. List, stating that the family would be away for a time, and he wouldn't be able to teach his Sunday school class. List was a responsible man and a faithful churchgoer, the pastor reported. He didn't think there was anything to be alarmed about and told the teacher so. But the List's oldest daughter, Patricia, was popular at school and active in the theater group. Her drama teacher, Ed Iliano, and her castmates felt that something had to be wrong. Pat wouldn't be gone so long and with no word. She was extremely committed to the theater group and had an important position in their newest production, A Streetcar Named Desire. She was the understudy for the actress playing Blanche Dubois, the main character. But opening night had come and gone, and no word from Pat or anyone else in her family. The neighbors also began to ask questions when they noticed, one by one, lights that had been illuminated inside the home since early November began to burn out. They also wondered about Alma List, John's 84-year-old mother. Alma lived with her son and his family, occupying the third-floor apartment. Perhaps the lists had gone out of town. It was said that Helen's mother was a sick relative. 
but maybe Alma stayed behind. If so, was she now ill or worse? Neighbors asked police to do a welfare check, but when they'd arrived, they simply rang the doorbell and then walked around the outside of the house when no one answered. They saw nothing amiss. The house seemed to be locked up tight and left. Finally, the drama teacher, Ed Iliano, and his assistant, Barbara Sheridan, decided to try and get inside the house to have a look around. On Tuesday night, December 7th, they drove up to Breeze Knoll. Iliano admits that he didn't want to go inside. He was afraid he'd be charged with breaking and entering, but he didn't know what else to do. So when they arrived, he made as much noise as possible, hoping the neighbors would get suspicious and call police. He parked the car in front of the house, slamming the door as he exited. In a loud stage voice, he called out, Well, I'm going to go up and take a look. His plan worked. A suspicious neighbor heard the commotion and alerted her husband. While he walked over to check things out, she called the Westfield police. Within minutes, a patrol car came barreling up the driveway. Officers Charles Holler and George Zelisnik confronted the pair. They explained their concern to the officers, who then began to walk around the perimeter of the house. Officer Zelisnik only saw one thing out of place. The basement window in the back of the house was ajar. They decided to go in. Perhaps the family was out of town, as had been reported, but someone could have broken in through the basement window to burglarize it. They slid open a window into the dining room and noticed a musty, decay-like smell. They saw an aquarium where several fish had died and thought that was where the offensive odor was coming from. As they walked from room to room in the large house, music was playing loudly throughout. There was a stereo somewhere tuned to a classical music station. There were several speakers wired throughout the first floor, and the sound of the somber music made their flashlight tour of the seemingly empty home feel that much more eerie. There was a large hall in the center of the house, with two staircases flanking it on either side. As they made their way across the hall to the left side of the house, they saw an arched doorway with a heavy dark curtain drawn over it. They peered in, and the musty smell grew stronger. It was the grand ballroom, and it seemed to be almost empty of furniture, as had many of the house's large rooms. The ballroom was completely dark. They trained their flashlights around the cavernous room, and a swath of light landed on a figure lying on the floor. The body was partially covered, but Officer Holler could see an arm. He ran over to grab it as an automatic reflex. As he did so, he felt it stiff and cold. Just then, someone snapped on the lights. The officers would never forget the sight before them. Three bodies lay side by side, vertically, on the floor of the ballroom. They were laying on blood-soaked sleeping bags. A fourth body lay horizontally at the head of the other three bodies. It was also on a sleeping bag. Their heads were covered with towels or blankets. When the towels were removed, they could see that all of the bodies were badly decomposed. The neighbor who'd gone to the home to investigate was William Cunnick, and he happened to be a specialist in internal medicine. He could tell that the bodies had been there for some time. He was able to identify them as Helen List, age 45, Patricia List, age 16, John Frederick List, age 15, and Frederick List, age 13. Officer Holler's first question to himself was, was this a mass murder or a mass suicide? The police chief, James Moran, arrived and the civilians at the scene were questioned about the home's residence. Missing from the bodies in the ballroom was the patriarch, John List, and his elderly mother, Alma. 
Ed Iliano told them that Alma lived upstairs. With guns drawn, the officers worked their way upstairs. They checked all the rooms on the second floor, but they were empty, before arriving at the third floor which served as Alma's quarters. An officer let out a startled cry as he literally stumbled on the old woman's body as he rounded a hallway. She was lying on the hallway floor on top of a plastic floor runner. Her body was grossly swollen and badly decomposed as well. Downstairs, the police chief was investigating each room. He found an office, and on the desk was taped a note that read, To the finder, 1. Please contact the proper authorities. 2. The key to this desk is in an envelope addressed to myself. 3. The keys to the files are in the desk. Next to the desk was a file cabinet. There were two notes taped to this cabinet. On one drawer, the note taped to it read, Guns and Ammo. On the drawer above it, the note read, To Pastor Rarewinkle, Burton Goldstein and Administrators. The officers who had searched the rest of the house now arrived to find Chief Moran reading the notes. They told him they had found Alma List, but there was no sign of John List Sr. The note writer instructed the finder to wait for a special delivery letter to obtain the desk key. Moran was not willing to wait. He told an officer to retrieve a crowbar, and they pried open the locked cabinet. He found two guns in a large manila envelope addressed to Pastor Redwinkle of Redeemer Lutheran Church. It was a long letter that was signed by John List. It began, Dear Pastor Redwinkle, I'm very sorry to add this additional burden to your work. I know that what I have done is wrong from all that I have been taught, and that any reasons that I may give will not make it right. But then, John List went on to give the reasons for killing his family. Each reason blamed someone or something else beside himself. The first reason he listed was, I wasn't earning anywhere near enough to support us. He then explained that he couldn't have filed bankruptcy or gone on welfare, because the environment his family would have to live in if he did so was more than he thought they could bear. He also stated Pat's interest in acting as a factor. I was fearful as to what this might do to her continuing to be a Christian, he wrote. He also blamed his wife Helen for having fallen away from the church. He believed that would cause the children harm and might result in them losing their faith as well. So that's the sum of it, he concluded. At least I'm certain that they have all gone to heaven now. If things had gone on, who knows if that would be the case. He then finally mentions his mother. Of course, mother got involved because doing what I did to my family would have been a tremendous shock to her at this age. Therefore, knowing that she is also a Christian, I felt it best that she be relieved of the troubles of this world that would have hit her. He then spelled out details for the family's funeral arrangements and notes that in the envelope there are additional letters for his mother's sister, his wife's mother, and his wife's sister. Finally, he blames God in part for his deed. I leave myself in the hands of God's justice and mercy. Apparently, he saw fit not to answer my prayers, he wrote. He then signs off. P.S. Mother is in the hallway in the attic, third floor. She was too heavy to move. John. Now the police knew who the murderer was, Mr. John Emil List. But where was he? The letters had been dated November 9th. It was now December 7th. Almost a month after murdering his family, he could be anywhere in the world. John Emil List was born in Bay City, Michigan in 1925 to John Frederick and Alma Marie List. John's father was 64 when he was born, 
26 years older than his wife. They had been married only one year when their son was born. John Frederick's first wife had died of cancer, and his oldest son, William George, was the same age as his new stepmother. John Frederick met Alma when she'd been hired as a live-in nurse to care for his ailing wife. John Frederick was a stern and deeply religious man from German-American stock. He, like his family before him, belonged to the most conservative branch of the Lutheran Church, the Missouri Synod branch. He taught his sons to center their lives on God and the values of family, hard work, obedience, and thrift. He showed no affection to his son, not even addressing him directly or by name, but always referred to him as the boy and communicated with him through Alma. John was expected to excel in school and dedicate himself to church and behave with honor and dignity as a reflection of his family's values. While he rarely interacted with his father beyond church attendance, his mother doted on her youngest boy. He spent most of his time helping her, and every night they would read the Bible together. Almost friends and neighbors remember her watching over John like a hawk, always concerned for his cleanliness and his health. She was afraid of her boy being exposed to dirt or germs of any kind. He always seemed to be bundled up in layers of warm clothing, even in mild weather. He was often alone. His mother didn't approve of most of the neighborhood children and wouldn't allow John to play with them. Her overprotectiveness even continued into his teen years. For his part, John stayed obedient to both his mother and father and never complained. He seemed to enjoy being with his mother. She was a loving, if stern-sounding mother. She had a thick German accent that sometimes sounded more intimidating than she realized. His high school peers, those who remember John List at all, recall him as a tall, very well-dressed bookworm. He was deeply religious, they'd later say, and was always well-dressed in starched shirts and slacks. He never participated in group activities outside of church. He graduated high school in 1943 and immediately joined the service. John was extremely patriotic and was eager to do his part for the war effort. But he spent his first year not overseas, but in an army camp in Louisiana. He did well in the platoon, ever an obedient rule follower, but didn't like what he considered to be crude behavior and language of the other enlistees. He was called a prude and a priss by his fellow soldiers and didn't fit in. In August of 1994, the base captain informed him that his father, who'd been seriously ill for some time, had died. He was given emergency leave to attend the funeral. Family and friends of the lists noticed that John showed no emotion up to or during the funeral. He shed not one tear. The death of his father didn't seem to affect him emotionally at all. They found it odd. In February 1945, John List was finally shipped overseas to Europe. The final assaults of the war were taking place in Germany. On April 11, 1945, his infantry patrol was captured by German troops, who threatened to shoot them as prisoners of war. But hours later, realizing that the war was all but lost, the German troops instead gave themselves up to the American soldiers. List's entire army division was awarded the Bronze Star, even though they had not been in a real battle. List would always be proud of this honor. The Japanese surrendered soon after, and List spent several more months doing busy work, like digging drainage ditches in the Philippines, while waiting for the army to discharge millions of troops and ship them back home. Finally, in April of 1946, he returned home to his mother. The war had given List a new interest in firearms, and he brought one home as a souvenir. 
an antique Austrian Steyr pistol that he'd purchased in 1944 and used to qualify for an Army Sharpshooter's badge. List entered college on the GI Bill. He, with the approval of his mother, decided to study accounting at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. He was still not very social, and again, his college peers would not remember him very distinctly later on. He would remember them, it seems. While on the run decades later, he would assume the name of one of his college classmates, Robert Clark. Clark would not even recall meeting List. Alma would make the three-hour bus trip once a month to visit her son at college for the weekend. She would stay at a nearby rooming house, and List and his mother would spend the weekend together, dining in restaurants and attending church. In June of 1950, List graduated with a bachelor's degree in business administration. He took an accelerated master's program in business, where he could earn credits for his Army experience. He graduated with his MBA the following September. He was hired at the prestigious accounting firm Ernst & Ernst as a junior auditor in its Detroit office making $56 a week, a respectable sum in 1950. He quickly qualified as a certified public accountant. But in November, he found himself in uniform once again, having received a leave from his company to join the efforts after the start of the Korean War. He was now a commissioned officer and didn't see any action in Korea, but was shipped off to work in an office at an army base in Virginia. He had plenty of time to pursue his interest in war history and visited several Civil War battlefields around the Richmond, Virginia area. He began to attend singles outings sponsored by the Lutheran Church. He went on one of these outings to a bowling alley with two other junior officers in October of 1951. There, he met a woman named Helen Taylor. Helen had only attended that night at the urging of her sister, Jean Seifert, Jean was married and was trying to get her sister out for an evening of fun. Helen's husband, Marvin Taylor, had been killed in Korea six months earlier. Helen was widowed at the age of 26 and had a nine-year-old daughter, Brenda. Not long after they met, List called Helen for a date. Helen had left high school at the age of 16 to marry Marvin Taylor. She now felt lost and alone as a widowed mother and welcomed List's attention. She was anxious to find a new husband. He looked good in his uniform, and he had a good job. Helen enjoyed the finer things in life, and John was willing to shower her with gifts. Helen's sister Jean saw red flags. She knew that Helen could be excessive in her spending, something her husband Marvin had had a firm control over, but List seemed to indulge her in her spendthrift ways. John, for his part, was thrilled to be dating such a beautiful woman. He wasn't concerned about her already having a child, or that she'd been previously married but he was a little afraid of what his mother would think. He doubted she would approve, and he had yet to tell her about his girlfriend. Helen realized that John was waffling a bit when it came to his mother. They had already begun sleeping together, and she told him that she thought she was pregnant. That sealed it for List. He believed he was in love with Helen, and he was also raised to do the honorable thing. They married on December 1, 1951, eight months after Helen's husband had been killed in Korea, and less than two months since they first met. They left her daughter Brenda with Helen's mother and traveled to Bay City so Alma could meet her new daughter-in-law. Alma was polite, but afterwards told her friends that she was devastated at John's choice of a bride, previously married and with a child to boot. Soon after the wedding, Helen told John that she had been wrong. She was not pregnant after all. John didn't seem upset at all by the news. He loved Helen and was proud that she was his wife. 
Later, however, John List would write in his prison biography that he felt angry and betrayed at Helen's initial deception. No one else remembers this being the case at the time. John was transferred to an Army accounting station in San Francisco, where he would help process hundreds of thousands of returning troops back to civilian life after the war. They would only be there for a short time, so they left Brenda with Helen's mother. List, however, decided at the last minute to invite his mother along. He said she might never have another chance to see California. Helen didn't object out loud, but she didn't feel accepted by her mother-in-law and wasn't thrilled with the idea. In April, List's army service was complete, and he and Helen and Brenda headed back to Detroit, where he resumed his position at Ernst & Ernst. They found a small house to rent. Their first few years of their marriage went well, and they were even happier when their first child, Patricia Marie, was born in January of 1955. She was a beautiful baby and good-natured. Alma even warmed towards her daughter-in-law after the birth of her first grandchild. Patricia's stepsister, Brenda, now 13, was thrilled with her baby sister. John had become a good stepfather to Brenda, often taking her to outings at the zoo or ice fishing. He now immersed himself in becoming a good father to his newborn, reading child-rearing books like the popular Dr. Spock Baby and Child Care Manual. When Patricia was a year old, Liss was being courted by a new firm, the Sutherland Paper Company, that produced paper packaging for the growing industry of convenience items. He joined the company as an accountant with a salary of $7,200 per year. The family moved to Kalamazoo, Michigan for List's new job. Helen became pregnant again soon after the move. John Frederick, named after List's father, was born on October 21, 1956. List, as always, joined the town's Lutheran church and attended with his family every Sunday. He was elected as treasurer of the parish, a position he was particularly proud of. Helen was proud as well, but she wasn't the avid churchgoer that her husband was. More often, she would beg off, attending to stay home and sleep in or make breakfast while Liz took the children on his own. He didn't fight with Helen about it, but he felt abandoned and didn't understand it. He continued to shower her with gifts as she wanted, but it seemed her disrespect for him grew anyway. She began to drink more, and when she'd had a few, she'd call him a goody two-shoes and seemed to resent him. Helen became pregnant again, but this time spent most of her pregnancy sick in bed. Frederick Michael was born on August 26, 1958. Helen became depressed after the birth of her fourth child. Whether this was due to postpartum depression, the fact that she had a colicky infant and two whiny toddlers, as well as a 16-year-old daughter who was threatening to run away, is unclear. She began to drink more heavily. She was also prescribed tranquilizers that she would mix with the alcohol. She was unable to function due to the combination, and List was tasked with taking care of the children when his wife couldn't get out of bed. John and Helen put a down payment on a house in 1959. However, their spending hadn't allowed for them to save up for this expense. John's father had owned a general store in Michigan. Alma now sold the property, estimated to be worth about $20,000. John and Helen received one-third of the profit from the sale, more than enough to put down on their new house. Helen continued to spend over their means. Neighbors also began to talk about the family. Baby Freddie had a very expensive playpen from the look of it, but it was often placed in the front yard of the house, and the toddler would be left outside unattended for hours. John seemed to be the classic hen-pecked husband, according to friends and neighbors in Kalamazoo. He would receive phone messages at work from Helen, 
that his co-workers would relay to him. Your wife called to say your son messed his pants, a typical one read. If you want them changed, come home and do it. John would be mortified that his co-workers saw the level of disrespect he received from his wife, but often he would give in and return home. The Sutherland Company prided itself on being family-oriented and didn't mind John taking an hour here or there to see the family matters. Co-workers said that Helen often called to complain about problems at home. She didn't seem to be able to handle the kids on her own, a co-worker remembers. John, however, never seemed to complain. Helen would even call the church after John left to attend service and insist he return home to change a diaper. Women at the church felt sorry for John and even tried to help. They paid a call to Helen to see how they could assist her, but she sent them away. She didn't want them interfering in her family's business. Helen often compared John with her dead husband Marvin, the war hero. She told him he wasn't half the man Marvin had been. He'd been a real war hero, she'd say. Brenda heard these tirades of her mother's firsthand. Mom was really boozing it up then, Brenda reported later. She was also on heavy doses of medication. Brenda had a falling out with her mother due to her drinking and spending. Brenda had been awarded survivor's benefits as a result of her father being killed in action. She'd argue with her mother, who she felt was spending the money on herself. She'd been threatening to run away from home for some time. When she turned 18, she married her boyfriend and left. To try and appease his wife, John continued to spend lavishly. They were starting to get in over their heads in debt. In 1959, he was promoted to a supervisor position, and his salary increased to $9,300 per year. But later that year, Sutherland was acquired by another company. The new owners didn't see List as management material. They informed him, saying that they thought it best he begin exploring other options. It was a polite way of saying, you're fired. Luckily, List was recruited for an even better position. Xerox had just launched its hottest product, a compact office photocopier. They were expanding rapidly and seeking out talent. List was offered a position in Rochester, New York, starting at the then astronomical sum of $12,000 per year to start. In the new position, List had longer hours and would not be able to come and go as he had before. The move to Rochester had agreed with Helen, and she was also happy about the increase in salary. She began to take a more active role in the family and even attended church sometimes. John and Helen even went on their first real vacation together. They left the children in Rochester with Helen's mother and made the grand tour of Europe, visiting Ireland, England, and Germany. Helen and John were happier than they'd been in a long time. She got to spend more time with her sister Jean as well. The two families would vacation together in the summers. Jean liked seeing her sister happy, but still thought Helen went overboard buying expensive clothes, jewelry, and shoes. She wanted the best of everything, Jean recalled. She also remembers John being odd, however. He seemed so stiff and formal all the time. His clothes were meticulous and everything had to be just so in his surroundings. Even the newspapers he read every day were folded so crisply and stacked so neatly, it was like they'd never been read. Even though John was earning a very good living, he'd made $25,000 in 1964 after receiving a bonus of almost $8,000 over his regular salary. He often seemed to be broke. He'd even borrow small sums from Jean and her husband during their vacations. At work, John continued to seek advancements in position, but the executives felt he'd reached the highest level they could offer him. He didn't have the management skills necessary for an executive position. He would become flustered, 
almost apoplectic when he was required to speak in front of a group. This would not do for a vice president of the accounting department, the position he was pushing for. What he wanted was a big title, his boss said, and when he kept asking for advancement, we had to tell him to look for another job. It was 1965, and John List was 40 years old. His wife's health had deteriorated again. She was bedridden most of the time. What wouldn't be reported until much, much later was that Helen had contracted syphilis from Marvin, her war hero husband. He had been infected after frequenting Korean brothels. When he'd been transferred to Korea in 1947, peacetime conditions allowed him to bring his wife and daughter along. While Helen was home with the baby, Marvin would visit Korea's bar girls. He then brought the disease home to his wife. Now Helen was suffering from the results of years of having the undiagnosed illness. She was experiencing the early stages of cerebral atrophy, a degenerative shrinkage of the brain tissues. Alcohol and depressants, like the tranquilizers she was prescribed, aggravated her symptoms. John, as he always had, aggressively and methodically searched for a new position. He sent resumes across the country. Xerox gave him a glowing endorsement, as had Sutherland before them. He hit pay dirt, everything he ever wanted, a great salary, $25,000 a year, comparable to his salary at Xerox, but this time he also had a title vice president and comptroller of the First National Bank of Jersey City, New Jersey. Confident now that all of his dreams and goals were coming to fruition, List decided he would find and purchase their dream home. He found it in Westfield, New Jersey, 25 miles southwest of Manhattan. He and Helen were impressed by the grand entrance with the sweeping staircase and the enormous ballroom topped by a stained-glass skylight. The house had been on the market for some time, as it was in need of repair, and a house of that size would be costly to maintain. The assessed value of the house was $100,000, but was listed at only $57,000. They made a lowball offer of $50,000, and it was quickly accepted. Even so, they didn't have the $10,000 down payment required. John knew only one person he could ask for the cash, his mother Alma. She agreed to give him the money on one condition. She would come to live with them. Helen was not thrilled to have her mother-in-law living with them full-time. However, her desire to own Breeze Knoll, the name the mansion had been given by its original builder, and the fact that the home had a private apartment on the third floor, where the old lady could live, sold her on the idea. They moved to Westfield, New Jersey, and into the mansion on Hillside Avenue in 1965. Neighbors were happy to have the family move into the long, vacant home, and waited anxiously for them to paint the house. It was badly in need and becoming an eyesore. The Lists were anxious to begin the remodeling projects as well, but their priorities were somewhat different. The first thing they did was purchase an enormous and very expensive chandelier to grace the center hall at the top of the stairway. The new paint job never happened. Neighbors also began to find the couple odd. Helen was hardly ever seen outside of the home, only attending church services with her family a few times. Helen would tell her sister that she had attended a church picnic soon after they joined Redeemer Lutheran and that she had been given the cold shoulder by the other women. You only got one chance with Helen, Jean would say. And John List was just plain strange, they thought. The neighbors said they'd wave at him and he'd pretend not to see them. There was also the curious sight of List mowing his large lawn, still dressed in a suit and tie. Friends of their son Johnny would say he was always dressed like that, Always. 
It was always a white shirt, dark suit, dark tie, come hell or high water, summer or winter. As the children began to grow up, John became even more strict with them. He disapproved of many things. It was the 1960s, and kids were into rock music, long hair, marijuana, and the Beatles. List felt that moral decay was pervading the nation. He would be damned if his kids would be part of it. He began to structure their schedules much as his father had done, schoolwork, chores, and church. He felt his teen daughter Patricia was the most at risk. She wore her hair long and parted in the middle like the hippie girls did and wore a leather jacket. She could sometimes have a smart mouth and would even curse now and then. Pat was most aware also of the reality of her home life. She knew that her mother was mentally ill and probably an alcoholic, and she knew that there was serious problems between her parents. She also knew that even though they lived in a mansion in the most exclusive area of town, they were poor. It was worse than Pat even knew. A year after being hired as the bank vice president, List was fired. He wasn't aware when he took the position that the bank expected him to bring in new business. List didn't have the social skills to be a salesman, and the bank soon realized their mistake in hiring him. List couldn't bring himself to report to his wife once again that he had failed. Instead, he continued to get dressed each day in a suit and leave with his briefcase. He would drive downtown and spend his days in the train station or sometimes in the park if the weather was good. He did this for months. He didn't tell Helen about losing his job until he finally secured another one. In the meantime, he withdrew money from his mother's bank account. She had given him power of attorney when they moved to Westfield. He viewed these as loans, telling himself he'd pay her back once he was back on his feet. He, of course, never told her he was withdrawing the money. He was finally hired at a company called American Photographic in New York City, but his salary was less than half of what he'd made in his previous two jobs. But that job also ended a year later when the company decided to relocate. Helen's health continued to get worse and she was hospitalized. Her condition of cerebral atrophy was diagnosed as a symptom of general paresis, which was fatal. List was urged to have his wife institutionalized, but he refused. He took out a $4,000 loan that he secured with a lien on the house. Two months later, he got a second mortgage on the house for $7,000. With that, he paid off the earlier $4,000. Now he worked out of his home selling mutual funds. Financially, he was able to keep his head above water, but just barely. Brenda came to visit her sick mother and her family and would say, Mom just couldn't stop drinking, and she kept making Daddy buy her all these clothes. Helen also increased her complaints about her husband to anyone who would listen, even ridiculing his sexual abilities. Her brain disease caused her to be increasingly angry and paranoid. While List was most critical of his daughter, Pat, many people remember her as a wonderful, kind, and independent young woman. When Pat realized that they were broke, she changed her high school track from college prep to vocational. Doing so would allow her to participate in the work-study program. She could go to classes in the morning and work for credit as well as pay in the afternoons. She got a job as a file clerk at KMV Associates, an insurance company downtown. She was also able to secure a job for her younger brother, Fred, at the company as well. He did light janitorial duties for 90 minutes after school every day. They could both now contribute to the family's income, as well as pay for their own simple expenses. All the kids had their own unique talents and abilities, 
and were good and responsible young people. For all his belief that his children were losing their faith, the list children were active in church. Pat still sung in the choir, and the boys attended confirmation classes and were members of the Boy Scouts. Johnny was a strong boy and an athlete who played on his junior high soccer team. Fred reported on games for his school paper and wanted to be a sports writer. Pat loved to sing and play the guitar. She had recently joined a theater group that had formed at the high school. She'd never acted before, but took to it quickly and loved her time there. She spent hours memorizing lines, even when she was merely an understudy. For the last production she was supposed to be a part of, A Streetcar Named Desire, she not only learned the lines to understudy the part of Blanche Dubois, but she learned everyone's lines in the play as well. She'd had a small part in the first play she auditioned for, Little Abner. She did not get a speaking role, but only a brief part where she walked on stage and performed a comic bump-and-grind dance. Her parents came to see her in the play. Her mother came backstage afterwards to congratulate her, but her father stomped off to the parking lot and waited behind the driver's seat with the engine running. He clearly disapproved of her performance. She stayed in the drama group over her father's objections. Now it was October 1971, and John List tallied up his debts. He had three mortgages on his house, totaling almost $50,000. They were all in arrears. That year, he'd made less than $5,000 selling insurance. His children were the only ones bringing a regular paycheck home. And his mother didn't know it, but she was almost completely broke. He'd withdrawn almost all the money in her account over time. On October 14th, he applied for a gun permit at the police station in town, providing his fingerprints in the process. For some reason, he never returned to pick up the permit. On November 5th, he called his children together. Sternly and without explanation, he advised them to be prepared to die because they would do so soon. Would they prefer to be buried or cremated, he asked. The children, shocked, mumbled, buried. Their father then walked into his office and shut the door. It's unknown what the children made of this, except for Pat. She believed her father capable of harming his family and shared her fear with her drama teacher, Ed Iliano. My father is going to kill me, she cried after rehearsal the next night. The teacher thought this was a typical overly dramatic teenage statement. He, somewhat amused, told her that nobody was going to kill her. She looked at him angrily and said, He said he is going to kill me. My brothers, too. He said that. Then she said, Listen, if he tells you he's going to take the family on a trip for a couple of weeks, that's it. That's how he's going to do it. He's going to make it look like we went away. He didn't know what to believe. Later, he'd wished he'd taken her seriously, but it would be too late. Tuesday, November 9, 1971, dawned bright and cold. John List was up at 5.45 in the morning, preparing for the events of the day. But first, he read the newspapers, as was his habit. John List was nothing if not a man of meticulously carried out habits. There was a large picture of Charles Manson, the alleged homicidal mastermind and leader of the cult-like Manson family, on the front page. He grinned out of the photo, looking for all the world like Satan himself. The two hottest musicals of the year were advertised on the theater page, Hair and Jesus Christ Superstar. Pure blasphemy, List thought. These shows build themselves as sharing the gospel of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but the actors were no more than unwashed hippies, druggies, and nearly nude harlots. It was disgusting, he thought to himself, 
He also believed it was telling that the best-selling book that year was The Exorcist. The whole country had gone to the devil, but he'd make sure his family wasn't damned as well. He packed his briefcase and small suitcase. He'd also packed his passport, but left his credit cards in his desk. Around 8 a.m., he heard the children come down one at a time and clatter around the kitchen eating breakfast. By 8.30, they had left the house. List went to a cabinet and removed two pistols, a 22 caliber automatic and his antique 9 millimeter automatic. Each had magazines that held eight rounds each. He laid the weapons on the desk. Soon after, the milkman drove up and parked behind the house. He walked into the unlocked back door where Mrs. List always left the note taped to the refrigerator listing the items he should leave. The note was from Mr. List this time. It said to stop deliveries until further notice because the family was going on vacation. A few minutes later, between 8.30 and 9 a.m., Helen came down to the kitchen and filled the tea kettle. The kitchen was located on the right side of the rear of the house. John quietly left his office with the 9mm in his hand. Helen was sitting at the kitchen table. He approached from behind on her left side. She sensed him behind her as he raised the pistol about 18 inches from her head. She was just beginning to turn her head slightly when he fired, hitting her in the jaw. He fired several more shots into her until she lay still. He quickly made his way upstairs to the third floor. He didn't knock before entering his mother's quarters. She was in the small kitchen holding a plate and waiting for her toast to pop up. Startled at the sight of her son, she asked, What was that noise downstairs? He raised the gun and shot her above the left eye, almost at point-blank range. He began to lift her from the floor to drag her downstairs and realized it would be impossible. He couldn't move her that far. He found a plastic carpet runner and pushed her body onto it before dragging it into the hallway just off the kitchen. He went back downstairs to where his wife's body lay in the kitchen. Grabbing her feet, he dragged her body across the floor, out of the kitchen, across the center hall, and to the other side of the house. Finally, he dragged her through the entrance to the ballroom. He left her there while he retrieved three sleeping bags. Back in the ballroom, he enrolled two, placing them side by side. The third he left zipped and placed perpendicular to the other two. He rolled Helen onto that sleeping bag face down. Helen was only wearing a nightie and a robe. He covered her as best as he could with the robe and then placed a bath towel over the rest of her body and a kitchen towel over her face. He was covered in blood. He went upstairs to wash up and change. But first he stopped in Helen's bedroom. They had been in separate bedrooms for some time. Without thinking, John wiped his bloody hands on Helen's bed sheets, leaving trails of bright red across the sheets. He began to feel nauseous and ran to the bathroom and vomited, leaving a bloody handprint on the toilet lid. He then showered and scrubbed off all the blood and changed into clean clothes. He called the branch manager of the insurance company. He knew he wouldn't be in yet. He left a message saying he would have to cancel his monthly meeting that was scheduled for 10 a.m. that day. His wife's mother was very ill, he explained, and he was taking his family to take care of her. He then began to write notes to cover the upcoming absences for his family members. He wrote one to Westfield High School for Patty, one to Roosevelt Junior High for his sons, and one to KMV Associates, where his two children worked their after-school jobs. In each one, he explained that the family left for an emergency trip to North Carolina. He decided to rake the leaves one last time, and then came inside and made a sandwich for lunch. 
List had everything planned, but just after noon, there was a hitch. Pat called to say that she wasn't feeling well and wouldn't be going to her after-school job. Could he pick her up? At first, he was annoyed, but then realized this would solve the problem of his daughter and son arriving home at the same time after work. He drove to the school to pick up Pat. Once they arrived home, John hurried to beat Pat into the house. She took a minute retrieving her books from the car before entering through the laundry room and into the kitchen. She didn't see her father waiting behind the door. He shot her once in the back of the head. He then dragged her body into the ballroom and placed her on one of the open sleeping bags on the floor near her mother. He washed and changed his clothes again. He had errands to attend to. He drove first to Suburban Trust Company, where he cashed a check for $85, drawn from his joint account with Helen. The balance after this withdrawal was $24.14. He then went to the post office. He mailed a special delivery letter to himself that held the key to his desk. At another window, he filled out a form to put a temporary vacation hold on the family's mail. Before leaving the post office, he mailed the notes to his children's schools. He drove to another bank and cashed a second check for $200, the balance available in his joint account with his mother. He had already drained her account of over $50,000. He then visited one last bank. Here he was led to the vault where the safe deposit boxes were located. He filled out an access slip that noted the time as 1.37 p.m. He removed a stack of savings bonds from it and took them to the teller, cashing them in for a total of just over $2,000. He signed out of the vault at 1.57 p.m. Meanwhile, Fred arrived to his after-school job at KMV. He was alarmed to learn that Pat hadn't come in to work. He called home. His father answered. A secretary at KMV remembers him saying, What happened to Patty? Fred told his employers he needed to go home. John now drove to pick up Fred. When they arrived home, he hurried ahead as he'd done with Pat and waited behind the door. He shot him one time in the back of the head. He then placed the body alongside his sister in the ballroom. Instead of waiting for Johnny to return home on his own, List went to the school where he was playing a practice soccer game. List sat there watching him play and then drove him home. He had the gun with him this time. The boy put his gym bag on the kitchen counter. His father walked in the house behind him and shot him. But Johnny didn't go down immediately like the others. The first shot didn't hit him in the head, but the back. It seems List panicked and continued to shoot his oldest son, a total of ten times, before he was sure he was dead. He dragged him to the ballroom and laid him on the sleeping bag near the rest of the family. Ever meticulous, List straightened the sleeping bags until they were perfectly aligned. He then said he said a prayer over their bodies before turning out the ballroom light. About 7 p.m., he called his pastor to say that his family was already on a plane for North Carolina, and he'd be joining them soon. He apologized that he wouldn't be able to teach the Sunday school class that weekend. Next, he called Pat's drama group. He reached the assistant, Barbara Sheridan, telling her Pat would be missing rehearsals for a while. He wasn't sure how long. My mother-in-law is very sick, he explained. That evening, he wrote the letters he would place in the manila envelope with a confession letter to his pastor. He wrote to Helen's mother, I just couldn't support them anymore, and I didn't want them to go into poverty. To Helen's sister, he shortened the message, saying, I'm sorry it had to go that way, but when I couldn't support them, I couldn't let them go on welfare, etc. To his mother's sister, he wrote more poetically, This was the only solution I could see for the family. And to save mother untold anguish over that result, 
I felt it best that she be relieved from this veil of tears. At the end of each one, he signed off with, Please accept my sincere condolences. It was late, but realizing he was hungry, he went into the kitchen and made himself dinner. He washed his dishes and left them on the drain board. He went to the billiard room and slept. He was up and ready to leave before dawn. His final tasks were to turn the thermostat down to 50 degrees, high enough so the pipes wouldn't burst from the cold, but cool enough to retard decomposition of the bodies. He switched on all of the lights in the house, save the ballroom lights. Finally, he turned the radio to the classical station, which would be piped throughout the first floor speakers. He gathered his small bag and his briefcase and left by the back door. He drove his 1963 Chevy Impala downtown. All shops and businesses were shuttered and quiet. He stopped briefly in front of KMV Associates, where Pat and Fred worked, and quickly slipped the envelope with the absence excuse letter under the front door. He drove the 38 miles into Manhattan to John F. Kennedy International Airport and parked his car in the long-term parking lot. He tucked the keys under the front seat and locked the doors before walking into the terminal. John List needn't have hurried. His family would not be found, his terrible deed not discovered, for 28 days. John M. O. List would not be seen again for 18 years. John List had seemingly disappeared without a trace. The police would conduct a search, but no one had a clue where he could be. Two days after the bodies were discovered, the last trace of John List would be found. His car was discovered parked at Kennedy Airport. Now the FBI was called in, as it was determined List must have fled the state, if not the country. They discovered that List's passport was missing from the house, so they assumed he may have skipped the country. However, no one using his passport had been checked through customs. The investigation was at a dead end. The story became a media frenzy. Such a sensational crime had never occurred in these parts especially since it concerned such normal middle-class people. Mob hits? Sure. Drug deals gone bad, perhaps. But it was unheard of for a nice family to be executed in such a heinous way. The police did a poor job of securing the crime scene after the fact. Before long, people including reporters, photographers, and just plain citizens were tramping through the house taking pictures and even souvenirs. Family pictures were taken out of their frames, the mailbox, the brass knockers, and the house number had all been stolen by souvenir hunters. The List family's meager amount of furnishings left had to be sold to pay for the funeral costs. There was no money left in any of the accounts. The family's funeral was held on December 10th. Helen's family, the children's friends, and a stunned community were all in attendance as the List family was laid to rest in Fairview Cemetery. All but Alma were buried in a single plot. After the funeral, Amalith's body was sent to Michigan to be buried alongside her husband. A bizarre coincidence occurred soon after List's disappearance that made some speculate that he had continued his life of crime. On Thanksgiving, after the murders, but before the bodies were discovered, a polite, soft-spoken middle-aged man, wearing glasses, hijacked a Northwest Orient flight, forced it to land where he picked up $200,000 in ransom money before once again taking flight. The man then parachuted out of the plane at 10,000 feet over the Cascade Mountains in Washington State. The man, known as D.B. Cooper, was never found. Some thought that John List might be the mysterious D.B. Cooper. He somewhat resembled the sketch of the hijacker. Most thought it was ludicrous, 
John List wasn't even strong enough to lift his 85-year-old mother, and he was in no way athletic enough to pull off such a feat. Still, it made for interesting barroom conversation. On August 30, 1972, nine months after the murders, the List home burned down. The fire had started in the center hall, and the flames spread quickly. Because local teens had been daring each other to enter the house, and some had even tried to conjure up spirits in one way or another, Authorities at first believed it had been started by a leftover candle or another careless act. But it would later be determined that the fire had been started by an arsonist. The person or persons who deliberately set fire to Breeze Knoll were never identified. In a final irony, the stained glass skylight above the ballroom that List turned into a morgue? After the fire, the window, now ruined, was discovered to be a Tiffany original. It would have been worth over $100,000 at the time more than enough for List to pay off his debts. And where was John List? Well, later he would say that he'd always wanted to see the Rocky Mountains, so he'd purchased a plane ticket to Colorado. He'd obtained identification under the name Robert P. Clark, the name of his long-ago college classmate. He bought a small trailer in a mobile home park with $1,500 cash, no questions asked. He lived simply, purchasing a small television from a local Walmart and furnishing his trailer with a small bed, table, and a couple of chairs. He read the newspapers every day and was surprised not to read anything about his crime for several weeks. On December 10th, he read about the discovery of the bodies in the Rocky Mountain News. He found a job as a night shift cook at a Holiday Inn outside of Denver. Restaurant employees, especially those working night shifts, had high turnover rates. Bob Clark became a fixture. He was reliable and dependable and seemed content to work without complaint as to the hours or the pay. He was polite and quiet, although he did seem to be a bit of a hypochondriac, always complaining of some ache or pain. The boss found him so dependable that he eventually made him the kitchen assistant. Then when he moved on to take a better job at a country club, he took Bob Clark with him. List, a.k.a. Bob Clark, would work there for three years. Because he'd been brought along, he'd had no need to fill out a resume or undergo a background check. He had easily obtained a social security number using the Robert Clark alias. After some time, his boss learned that he had previously been an accountant. Bob just explained that he'd been burned out by the stress and decided to live life more simply. His employer put his skill with numbers to good use, helping to make sure the kitchen ran profitably. His next goal was to obtain a driver's license, which he was able to do after he could prove work and rental history and a telephone number. In the 1970s, it was that simple. Bob would eventually join St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Denver. He eventually let the pastor know about his accounting degree, and he was appointed to the Parish Finance Council. Bob began attending church-sponsored singles functions, and in 1977, he met a recent divorcee named Dolores Miller. Bob got to know Dolores and told her he was 46 years old, six years younger than his actual age. Dolores wasn't interested in seriously dating anyone, but he was persistent and she thought him nice enough. Before long, others simply saw them as a couple. He told her his wife had died of cancer after a long illness. He didn't like to share details, and she chalked it up to him grieving his late wife. She didn't ask any more questions. He enrolled in classes to become a certified tax preparer for H&R Block. By 1977, he was back in the accounting business. When tax season was over, 
he found a job at a carpet business doing their books. He was employed there for two years. He found an apartment close to where Dolores lived and continued to reside there for seven years. In 1979, he found a better job as an office manager at a packaging company where he was paid $300 a week. Now he and Dolores started considering a future together. In 1981, they purchased a condominium together for $26,900. Dolores moved in while Bob continued to live in his apartment. He then invested his savings in a direct mail franchise. It didn't pan out, and he lost most of his savings in the venture. But he'd been promoted to comptroller at the packaging company and given a raise to $490 a week. In 1985, Dolores finally agreed to marry him. They were married in Maryland, where Dolores had relatives. Five months after the wedding, Bob was laid off. Dolores took a job to tide them over, but he had trouble finding another position. By 1986, Dolores was tired of carrying her new husband. She told their neighbor, Wanda Flannery, if he didn't find a job soon, she was leaving him. Wanda liked Bob. She thought he was a nice man and a gentleman, and he clearly loved his bride. She felt sorry for him. She could see he wasn't lazy. He would dress up in a suit every day and look for work. He just hadn't had any luck yet. In February of 1987, Wanda, as was her habit, picked up one of the tabloid papers you find in the grocery store near the checkout aisle. This one was the Weekly World News. It was full of salacious gossip and was Wanda's guilty pleasure. She was flipping through the paper and saw an article titled The Perfect Crime. It was the story of a mass murderer who'd killed his entire family in 1971 and simply disappeared. There was a 15-year-old picture of the wanted man, and Wanda looked outside her window to see her neighbor Bob Clark, who looked remarkably like the man in the photograph. She told her daughter who was visiting, but her daughter told her she was crazy. Don't be a busybody, she said. But Wanda ticked off the similarities between the fugitive and her neighbor. Besides the resemblance, the article stated that John List was polite, formal, and distant. Check. It also said he was very religious and a practicing Lutheran. Check. He was a pleasant and orderly man who wore a coat and tie, even on casual occasions. Check. He'd worked as an accountant. Check. He bounced from job to job and had persistent money problems. Check and check. Even more startling, it said that List had a mastoidectomy scar that ran from the base of his right ear to his collar. Check. Wanda had also suspected that Bob was somewhat older than he'd said, which lined up with the age of the fugitive. Now she was in a quandary. Should she tell her friend Dolores about her suspicions concerning her husband, or would she think she was crazy or even get angry? The next day she decided to show her the article. If he was dangerous, she would never forgive herself if something happened to her friend. She knocked on her door when she knew Bob was gone. Read this, honey, she said. Dolores did and was confused. And, she said, don't you think that's Bob, she asked. Dolores giggled. Oh, gosh, no. Bob wouldn't hurt a flea, she laughed. Why don't you show this to Bob? Just see what he says, Wanda urged. Okay, I guess I could for fun, she said, still amused. The next day, she went to visit her friend. What did he say about the article, Wanda asked. What article, Dolores answered. Oh, that. I threw it out. That man wasn't anything like Bob. I'm sorry, did you want it back, she asked. No, that's okay, Wanda answered, and let the matter drop. Bob finally received a job offer from a firm in Richmond, Virginia. 
He thought he could convince Dolores to move there since her family didn't live far away. He went ahead of her to get settled, while Dolores worked on securing a transfer from her company to the Richmond area. While Bob didn't have any money to speak of, Dolores did. They decided to put some of it towards a down payment on a house in Virginia. They began their house hunt. They found a ranch house and were able to purchase it for $72,000. It would be John List's last home. America's Most Wanted was a program that began airing as a half-hour show in February of 1988. Each episode featured dramatizations of crimes where the perpetrator was still at large. At the end of each episode, a picture and description of the wanted person was displayed, along with a hotline number that tipsters could call into immediately after the show. After watching America's Most Wanted, Captain Frank Maronka, head of the Homicide Division for Union County, New Jersey, wanted to get the list case on the show. He sent a letter to the producers. They sent back a reply stating they weren't interested. The case was too old, and the show was too new to take on such a hopeless case. Nine months later, Maronka attended a law enforcement conference in Delaware, where the executive producer for America's Most Wanted would be speaking. He approached him at the conference and asked to speak with him. He'd brought a box of evidence, including crime scene photos, to show him. The details of the case, the ballroom, the Sunday school teacher, the confession letter, intrigued him. He was sold. He told them he'd order a segment about the List case for a future show. But one element was lacking that was needed for the program, a photo of the fugitive. The photos they had were almost two decades old. The producer knew a commercial photographer and sculptor named Frank Bender. He'd been working with police departments to reconstruct clay models of decomposed bodies that needed to be identified. They commissioned him for $1,500 to make an updated bust of a now 64-year-old John List. Bender worked with a criminal psychologist, Richard Walter, who helped with the profile. They theorized what he'd look like today, including the style of eyeglasses he would wear, the type of clothes he'd most likely dress in, etc. They produced a clay bust of the paunchier, older version of John List with a receding hairline. The 10-pound clay head was shown along with a segment on an episode of America's Most Wanted that aired on Sunday night, May 21, 1989. Wanda was no longer neighbors with the Clarks, but she still corresponded with her friend Dolores. After watching the program, she knew she had to act. She grabbed the last letter she'd received from her friend with her new address and asked her son to call the hotline. She heard her son asking if there was a reward, something she had not asked him to do. When they said they weren't sure, he hung up. She told him to call back and give them the address like she'd told him to. He called back and supplied the information. The tip called in by Wanda Flannery's son was forwarded to the Richmond, Virginia FBI office. They made some inquiries by phone to get more details. The age of this man, called Bob Clark, seemed to be in the ballpark. He was religious, attended Lutheran churches. He was an accountant, well-dressed, no children. They felt it was worth a trip to check out Bob Clark. They arrived on the morning of June 1, 1989, to the house owned by Bob and Dolores Clark. Dolores answered the door, and they identified themselves as FBI agents. Bob was at home, she said. He was at work. They asked to come in where they showed her the FBI flyer with John List's wanted status and photo. Could this possibly be your husband, they asked. That looks like it could be my husband, she answered, shaking. But it can't be. He's the nicest man in the world. She began to cry. 
They told her it might be a coincidence. It often was, trying to calm her down. They asked her for a picture of her husband. She showed them their wedding photo. The agents believed there was no question now. Dolores Clark's husband was the wanted fugitive, John List. They obtained the address of Bob's office and made the short drive there. When they arrived, they found him coming down a hallway from the coffee room. Mr. Clark, they addressed him, we're with the FBI. He showed no fear or concern. Would you tell us your name, please? Robert Clark, he answered. Are you John Emil List, they asked. No, he answered without question or hesitation. Then you won't mind coming down to the police station for fingerprints, they said. They cuffed him and read him his Miranda rights. They realized he'd never even asked what the charge was. Even guilty people asked that question, they thought. Once they got his fingerprints, they determined that he was indeed John List. After 18 years, the fugitive was captured. He was held on the federal charge of being a fugitive from prosecution for homicide. A week after he was arrested, he entered a plea of not guilty, and bond was set at $1 million. Prosecutors then moved to drop the fugitive charge to quickly extradite him back to New Jersey to be charged with five counts of first-degree murder. Once in New Jersey, he was put into protective custody in a private cell, as was the usual procedure for the most infamous criminals. He quickly proved to be a model prisoner, still the meticulous rule follower. His court-appointed attorney knew his only chance to defend his client was to prove he had committed the crimes under extreme stress. He also tried to get the confession letter excluded as it was addressed to List's pastor, and he argued was privileged communication. List never protested that he was innocent, but strangely, he continued to insist that his name was Robert Clark. While he was awaiting trial, Jean Seifert, Helen's sister, arrived with her husband to confront her former brother-in-law. She at first had no idea what she would say to him. As they entered, he nodded stiffly to them. She surprised herself when she reached out and gave him a hug. For the first time ever, she saw him cry. They began to talk, not of the crimes at first, but eventually she had to ask one question. Why, John? she simply asked. Without emotion, he answered, because there was no other way. Why was there no other way, she pressed. It just had to be that way, he said. She could tell the subject was closed. She wanted to ask him, then why didn't you kill yourself that night too? But she couldn't bring herself to ask it. He asked her about Brenda, his stepdaughter, and found out she was now a grandmother. He learned that Helen's mother had died two years earlier, and he asked about Jean's children. He joked about the D.B. Cooper rumors. He was so controlled. She didn't believe he was insane, not at all. She saw arrogance, coldness, and calculated evil, but not insanity. Bernard Tracy, a detective who had been given the John List case in its final years, had been a teenager in 1971. He was one of the teens who would drive up to the abandoned List house on dares with his friends. He said this about List. The guy is a mean, arrogant, selfish, hypocritical piece of shit. Bob Wetmore, List's co-worker at the restaurant in Colorado who got to know Bob Clark well, said, After a while, I did begin to realize that he had a devious mind and was a cold, calculating son of a bitch. On April 12, 1990, after seven days of testimony, the jury found John List guilty of five counts of murder in the first degree. There was no capital punishment in the state of New Jersey at the time, so he was spared the death sentence. 
He was, however, given the maximum sentence of five consecutive life terms, ensuring that he would never be eligible for parole. At his sentencing, the judge said, The name John M. List will be eternally synonymous with the concepts of selfishness, horror, and evil. John M. List, he said, repeating his true name, is without remorse and without honor. After 18 years, 5 months, and 22 days, it is now time for the voices of Helen, Alma, Patricia, Frederick, and John F. List to rise from the grave. Dolores Miller divorced John List, a.k.a. Robert Clark, in 1989. John List died in 2008 from complications of pneumonia at the age of 82. He'd served 19 years in prison. Okay, so I'm sure you're wondering, as I was when researching this case, what the hell was wrong with this guy? What could really cause him to do such a thing and, it seems, live with it quite easily? So here are a few thoughts and observations. The psychiatrist who interviewed him before his trial said that John List was not insane, in his opinion. He did say that List had an extreme form of obsessive-compulsive disorder. This, he said, caused him to fix on a task, and then he would never waver from it. He wouldn't stop to think of a plan B or assess if what he was doing was good or bad, right or wrong. His obsessive personality didn't allow for much more than black-and-white thinking. That's interesting, but OCD, as far as I know, has never been correlated with homicidal impulses. So there has to be more. One glaring issue was that List almost never showed an emotion of any kind. No sadness, no remorse or guilt. From what I could gather, he never thought or spoke of his murdered wife, children, or mother. He said he would say a prayer for them each November 9th, the anniversary of the murder, but that was it. Even when he reported that, he showed no sadness at all. List was raised by two very stoic parents. His father never showed him any affection. He didn't believe in it. He thought it showed weakness. His mother loved him, but she wasn't affectionate either. To her, showing affection meant taking care of him, making sure he was fed, kept healthy, and taught to follow the Bible. She was certainly overprotective and perhaps overly attached to her only child. But Elma wasn't warm or emotionally demonstrative. So he had no examples from his upbringing on how to express his emotions. In the ways of human interaction, he was stunted and repressed. What his father did teach him was obedience. In the List House, it was all about being obedient to your parents, to God, and to other authority figures, teachers, the government, etc. John List was a faithful churchgoer all of his life and was an active participant in the Lutheran Church. List didn't understand emotions and wasn't very skilled at human interactions, but he could follow rules and structure very well. The church provided this for him, as did the army later on. He did well in jobs that had a structured set of functions that he was able to learn and carry out. But when it came to more complex skills like managing people and interacting with clients to make a sale, he was unsuccessful. He also had ideas of what made a good father. And by most accounts, John List was a good father. He spent time with his children in structured activities like Boy Scouts, church, and even sports. List was no skilled athlete, but he'd spend time throwing the ball with his sons. Neighbors found it comical the way he'd throw. With his arm bent at the elbow, he'd pull his throwing hand way back before releasing, but wouldn't extend his arm fully, so the ball would drop to the ground just a few feet away. But he did make an effort. With his daughter, he wasn't quite sure how to interact. 
They had church and that was all. The things Patricia was interested in, music and acting, he felt were a waste of time and possibly sinful. His stepdaughter Brenda recalls good times with her stepfather. They enjoyed going ice fishing together. Again, a pretty structured activity and not one typical for father and daughter to spend time doing together, but Brenda enjoyed it. As a husband, List was also following a set of guidelines he had in his head. He met a pretty woman, the first one he had ever dated seriously, and decided he was in love. So that just left getting married. Luckily, she was looking for a husband at the time. With his second wife, Dolores, he also wanted to marry right away, but she stalled him for some time before she finally agreed. Again, he never wavered in his goal to marry her and finally did. Emotionally, I don't think John List ever had a real connection with anyone. He did an interview from prison detailing the murders and his reasons for them in a very matter-of-fact way. It was completely devoid of emotion, even when he spoke of killing his children. It's chilling. Here's an example where he even chuckles when describing how he placed their dead bodies on sleeping bags and his reasons for doing so. I just thought it was better than just laying them on the blank floor. There was no carpet in most of the house. That was the one thing I was trying to prevent. Was there feeling any wounds or suffering you know, at the last moment? How compassionate, huh? <laughs> Helen lists only requirements for her husband. She expressed this pretty early in their marriage, was that he provide a good income and all the material comforts she desired. He set that as his goal and continued to do so, even when their financial situation was rocky. In effect, he bought her love and loyalty. When he could no longer do so, he didn't have a plan B. One thing John List desired for himself was status. Noel provided him with this status. It was the most exclusive neighborhood in the area. Having a title, he believed, also provided him status. A couple of times he had a good job situation, but left to take a position with a more prestigious title and, of course, better pay, something he needed to keep his wife happy as well. What about List's stated reasons for killing his family? He said that, number one, he was unable to provide for them anymore. He explained that he couldn't put them through the indignity of having to go on welfare. He said he was trying to save them from a life of poverty. But I have to call bullshit on that. I don't really believe that that was the issue. They could have downsized to a more affordable house. The kids had jobs. Liz could have gotten another job, albeit one without a title or as large a salary, perhaps. But they could have pulled through if they budgeted. His wife was dying. She was no longer out shopping or even drinking anymore. Her daughter reports that she had stopped drinking by the time of her death. She was so ill that she didn't care for it anymore. No, I think he wanted a fresh start for himself. He wanted to walk away without any entanglements, without any financial burdens. And he did so. For 18 years. Lastly, he said he was trying to save the souls of his family. He said they were going down the wrong path, and the only way that he could be sure that they would go to heaven was to kill them before their sins condemned them. But that's a very convenient excuse and completely hypocritical. What about the commandment, Thou shalt not kill? He knew his Bible. He knew taking innocent lives was wrong. He was not God but he decided that he would be judge, jury, and executioner of his entire family. I believe his loss of status, career-wise and financially, caused him to have an existential identity crisis that he couldn't or wouldn't deal with. 
His only solution was to completely start over, and that meant wiping out his past completely, his wife, his mother, his children, and his own identity. His last holdout was his refusal to be called by the name he'd used in his previous life, John Emil List. That, I believe, sums up his real motivation for murder. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Thanks to all our new Patreon supporters. I am so grateful for your support. I released the first premium episode for supporters this week, and I'm looking forward to sharing more premium episodes in the near future. If you'd like to support the show and get some cool perks in return, like sticker packs, premium episodes, bonus content, and more, go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. Links to that and all of our social media accounts are in the show notes. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another.